Chapter 6, A Friend and an Enemy For the first few days that he wore the Piso armoring, Beric lived in a state of perpetual bewilderment, so that his head felt hot all the time, and nothing and nobody seemed quite real. And then, very slowly, he began to get his breath back and be able to look about him. His head stopped feeling hot, and he began to learn his way about the courts of the great house of the Vinmeal Hall Hill, where at first he had got constantly lost, and through the unfamiliar pattern of the days, and even which were which of his fellow slaves. There were many slaves in the household of Publius Piso, and they all had a tendency to do bits and pieces of each other's work, while somebody else did theirs, or did not, as the case may be. That was not Nigellus's fault. It was partly because the Lady Papea was in the habit of calling to any slave she saw and ordering him to drop what he was doing and run instantly to do something else. Partly because Publius Piso changed his slaves so often that there were always some in the household who did not know their jobs. Publius Piso was forever buying and selling slaves. Beric soon learned that. The only one who seemed safe from the habit of his was Nigellus. Nigellus had been his body slave when they were both boys, and had gone with him through his tribune service with the legions, and risen slowly to be the steward of his household, and had become so much a part of him that he would have soon thought of selling his own right arm. At first, Beric wondered why none of his slaves ran away. It would have been quite easy, for they were often sent on errands into the city, and sometimes they had time off and could go out and spend it as they choose. And then, he realized that it was because most of them knew no other life. And for the few like himself who did, there was nowhere to run to. To run away would mean going underground, perhaps joining the robbers to live at all. There was little future in that. At least he was no longer hungry, nor beaten without cause. Officially, he was a house slave, but it was not long before he began to find his way into the stables. He liked old Hippias, who had charge there, and who liked him in return. And with the horses, Publius Piso kept fine horses and did not sell them as often as he did his slaves. He was less lonely than with his fellow slaves. His world was a slave's world. Ruled by Nigellus and the family he served were figures moving in another world, seen at a distance. Publius Piso was a fussy man, but under the fuss and the self-importance, a kindly man who might even have been kind to his slaves if it had occurred to him that they had feelings. His wife, the Lady Papea, was a very different matter, fat and white and fretful and without kindness. The Lady Lucia was her mother over again, though not fretful. But that, Beric thought, was probably because she was only 15. Maybe the Lady Papea had not been great fretful when she was 15. And then there was Glaucus. Glaucus, with his gay good looks and his lazy, laughing manner, standing out from his family like a goldfinch among sparrows. So Beric saw them, colored but flat, like figures in a fresco, those first few months that he belonged to them. The autumn rains had broken soon after he joined the household, and the winter came and there was no s- and there was snow on the Alban hills that he could glimpse from an upper window of the slaves' quarters. And then the snow went, and the first faint promise of spring began to stir and Beric's longing for his own hills and his freedom that had never left him for a moment grew quick and urgent within him. It must be so that the wild geese feel when they fly north in the spring, he thought, and the swallows when they come in from the south to nest under our caves. But the swallows and the wild geese are free to go when they hear the call. 
it was all the worse in a way because by that time he was allowed outside the gates and even with one or two others sent out sometimes to exercise the horses and it would have been so easy to escape only there was nowhere to escape to then came a morning when the promise of spring was suddenly fulfilled as with fanfare of trumpets a morning when the hazels would be flinging their yellow pollen to the wind along the wood shores of the north and the curlews would be calling and something within Barrack seemed beating and beating for freedom, until he felt bruised with its beating. But he was not the only one to feel the spring that morning, for the Lady Lucia, who always had breakfast in her sleeping cell in the usual way, suddenly decided to have it in the garden. It so happened that Barrack entered the kitchen just as the tray was ready, and the cook thrust it into his hand, saying, It is for the young lady. Take it out to her. There's a good lad. She's on the terrace. Carefully carrying the tray, set with little hot loaves and wild honey, Barrack made his way across the inner court with its fountain and its lemon and myrtle trees in slender stone jars, and out into the small garden. The shadow of a flying bird darted before him over the grass and in the brown shade of the elix tree beside the ste terrace steps were a host of tiny pink flowers that looked as though they were too were winged and might take flight at any moment. The Lady Lucia was sitting on the curved stone bench in the kind of bay of the parapet, and nothing but sky beyond her, for the garden of the Piso house was on the very brow of the Vim Viminal, and beyond the terrace the hill dropped steeply to the heart of Rome. She was playing with a small white kitten with golden eyes and did not look up at the sound of Barrack's sandals on the pavement. Barrack hesitated, wondering suddenly whether he ought to have put the tray down somewhere and brought out a table first. He did not know. It was the first time he had actually waited on any of the family. My lady, he began at last, may I put this on the bench while I fetch a table? She looked at him. Oh, it is you, Barrack. Yes, set the tray here beside me. I shall not want a table. Barrack bent and set the tray carefully where she bade him, poured water into the silver cup and shifted the napkin so that it was towards her hand, and straightened again to find her still watching him. You did that very well, she said. Thank you, my lady. Barrack stood straight before her, waiting to be dismissed. But Lucia did not dismiss him. Instead, she said, I saw you bring back the new Asinian mare from exercise yesterday. And then, as he did not answer, You are British too, are you not? I, Barrack began and hesitated, gazing at the parapet behind her. I am from Britain. Lucia did not seem to notice the hesitation. After a moment, she said with a small, contented sigh, Isn't it lovely that it's spring again? The cyclamen are all coming into flower under the ilex tree, and soon the swallows will be back. Do you have swallows in Britain in the spring? Barrack's gaze slipped over the parapet into the faint opal mist of the morning, out of which the hills of Rome rose into the sunlight. But they were other hills than that he was seeing. Yes, we have swallows in Britain in the spring. The Lady Lucia bent her head quickly over the kitten in her lap, and then looked up again and said with a catch in her voice, that was stupid of me. I'm sorry. I, I did not think. Barrack stared at her in surprise, at the warmth in her voice as much as her words. My lady, it, it makes no difference. I was remembering the swallows already this morning. Were you? I'm so sorry, said the Lady Lucy again. There was an uncertain silence. Barrack shifted his weight from one foot to the other, realizing that she knew no more than he did what to say next or how to break off the small, half-shy exchange that had somehow taken them both unawares. Finally, he said, 
my lady, would you rather have cheese than honey? Shall I bring some? She shook her head. No, I like honey best. Thank you for bringing me my breakfast barrack. A few moments later, making his way back to the house with the ache of misery suddenly a little warmed and was comforted, Barrack was thinking to himself that the Lady Lucia was not in the least like her mother after all. The Lady Papea was fat and white and without kindness, but the Lady Lucia had been kind to a homesick slave, and she no longer looked fat or white to him. Spring passed by, and with its sudden downpours that the sun and the maestro dried almost as they, as they fell, and the lemon blossom scattered its petals into the cool waters of the fountain, and the long, breathless days of summer came, and it was more than a year since Beric's old life had cast him out. Usually, he found, the household moved out for the hot months of the Piso farm in the Alban Hills, but this year they remained in Rome, because the Lady Lucia was to be married at the end of summer and there was so much to do to make ready for the marriage. The Lady Lucia was marrying a friend and fellow magistrates of her father's, Valerius Longus, by name. Beric had seen him sometimes when he came to the house, a lead, dark man who bore the traces of his early soldiering far more clearly than Publius Piso did. There was a quiet, finely-tempered air about him, and presumably Lucia liked him, for she seemed well content. But he must be nearly as old as her father, and Beric could not help wondering whether she was as content as she seemed. As the Lady Lucia had cared whether he was homesick, so he cared whether she was happy. But Beric had little leisure for wondering that summer. Only a few days after he heard about the coming marriage, Bucephalus, the big roan charger, was stung by a gadfly while Hippias was combing his tail, and gave the old man a kick as the result of which he was now laid up with a broken leg, and Beric found himself doing all he could to fill his place for him, so that Publius Piso should not buy another groom. Hippias could not be sold off while he had a broken leg, because naturally no one would buy him. But it was quite possible that Publius Piso might buy another slave now, and if he liked the new one best, sell Hippias the instant he was sellable. Hippias was frightened of that. He was growing old, getting to the stage of when change of masters was almost bound to mean a change for the worst and squatting beside the pallet bed at the end of the men's dormitory, where the old man lay frightened and in pain, Bear could reassure him as best he could. If there is no need for a new groom, it will not come into our master's mind to buy one, not with the Lady Lucia's marriage to think about, and there will be no need for a new groom. I will see to that. And he had gone to Nigellus and asked to be taken off house duties for the time being. And Nigellus had done his best, so that now nearly all Beric's time was passed in the stables. He was there one breathless August afternoon, evening, seeing to Venetia, an Icenian mare, whom the master of the house had just had out. Publius Piso rode for exercise before dinner every other day, unless business prevented him or the weather was too bad. He was not a big man, but he rode heavily and hardly, and today Venetia was clearly distressed. Beric did not wonder. There had been a storm brewing all day. Brassy clouds banked around the skyline and the air heavy and sour with thunder. In the shadowed stable, with every door open, there seemed no air to breathe. And out in the stable yard, beyond the door, the heat danced above a shimmering mirage that looked like pools of water on the cobbles. The mare hung her head, dribbling and uneasy. The master might have foregone his ride today, Beric thought. But the master was a man of habit. At least he might have taken Bucephalus, who was better up to his springless thumping. Beric talked to her softly and consolingly in the Celtic tongue, 
as he rubbed her down and covered her with a light cloth that would keep her from getting chilled. Poor little sister, beautiful sister. It's better now. Yes, I know you're thirsty. You shall drink soon. And the mare, with some dim remembrance of the tongue that had been familiar to her when she was a foal, whinnied softly and swung her head to nuzzle at his shoulder. When she was cooled off enough, he brought her a pail of water and then filled her manger with fresh hay and a handful of beans to keep her happy while he got on with his grooming. Footsteps came across the yard, loud in the breathless hush, and a shadow darkened the doorway. He looked up to see Glaucus, cool from the baths and exquisite in a tunic of pale green silk. Beric drew himself to attention, making the obeisance that had become habit with him now. Glaucus acknowledged it with a friendly nod and propped himself against the manger. Beric wondered what he had come for. He was often in the stables, but that was to visit the white chariot team. He used as his own, though they were actually his father's. He seemed to be taking an interest in Venetia, watching her eat. She's only playing with her food, he said after a moment. Why? She's tired and not hungry, Beric told him. No one could be hungry in such weather as this. He jerked his head towards the open doorway, beyond which the sunshine was growing dim and sulfurous. Take the cloths off a moment, and let's have a look at her. Beric did as he was bid, and Glaucus ran an experienced eye over the glossy flanks and beautiful arched neck. She has been over hot. I know, Beric said. May I cover her again now? Yes, of course. If she's out of condition... She's not out of condition, Beric said quickly. She's She's been overridden on a hot day. Yes, I know. The other sounded friendly, and Beric looked up to encounter a grin, and a cocked eyebrow of amused understanding that somehow failed to act on him as it did on most people who came within the range of Glaucus's charm. My father is a vile horseman, is he not? If he is, it is not for me to say so, Beric said stiffly. He wondered why the son of the house, who had never before spoken to him, save to toss him an order, should come and talk to him like this. No, but it is true nonetheless. He should never attempt to ride anything less than an elephant, which is what I came to talk to you about. Sir? Barrett gazed at him in bewilderment. Glaucus drew a hand lightly down Venetia's neck, watching it. Yes, he said reflectively. As you say, she's not out of condition, but I think that it would take little to get her out of condition. He raised his eyes to Barrett's face and added, as though changing the subject, Have you begun saving to buy your freedom yet? It's not easy to save without money, Beric said, after a surprised silence. Could you do with a gold orum to start the fund, or to have fun with, if that appeals to you? Beric was suddenly on his guard. How should I have to earn it? Quite simply. Now listen. There's no one in the hayloft, is there? No. Well then. The thing is that Venetia is wasted on my father, while a friend of mine, a man who rides as she deserves to be ridden, is itching to have her. You can't wonder. She's a beauty and goes like the wind, don't she, my lady? He drew his hand down again the mare's neck, while Beric, who knew that she was a beauty and went like the wind, stood warily looking on. Well, my father is being as stubborn as a mule about selling her. I wish he was as easy about selling his horses as he is about selling his slaves. But if she was to suddenly go out of condition, badly out of condition, he would be only too pleased to sell her and half of what she's worth, lest 
he be not able to sell her at all. I know my father. There are ways, I think, for anyone skilled in horsecraft. Ways which leave no trace and do no lasting harm to the horse. It would have to be done while that old dotard Hippias is out of the way. Yes, it would have to be done while Hippias is out of the way, agreed Beric. Well then, I do not think that I understand. The other laughed. Don't pretend to be a half-wit. However, if you would lifer have it in so many words, you get the mare into poor condition. My father sells her off in a hurry to this friend of mine who wants her so badly he'll forgive me a whole fistful of money that I owe him in exchange for having got her, let alone in half what she's worth, and you have an orum for your pains. If you need money to pay this debt, why not ask your father for it, Beric said. Glaucus shrugged, still half laughing. My father has certain economies. Look at the way he buys his own slaves, and so does Nigellus out of his commission. Certain economies, and I am not one of them. The Lady Papea, then, your mother. All the household knew how the Lady Papea adored and spoiled her son. Mother never has any money, said Glaucus with engaging frankness. Father pays her bills. He even keeps her jewels when she's not wearing them. His pleasant voice hardened a little. I did not come here to be questioned. Will you do it? No, Beric said. I will not. Glaucus was clearly surprised. You'll not get more than an orum, he said. It is in my heart that I do not want your orum. Oh, come now. Glaucus tried another laugh, but it sounded a little uneasy in the heavy silence of the nearing storm. My father can get another mare, and he will not have missed the money. If he was not so mean, I should not have to bother with this sort of game. You're not going to pull a long face and be righteous about it, are you? No, Beric shook his head. It is only that I will not do it. He was puzzled by his own determination. He owed no loyalty to Publius Piso. If you would cheat your father, let you do it with your own hands, he heard himself say. An odd change came over Glaucus's handsome face. It seemed to grow sharper and older before the slave's eyes. Who are you to take that tone with me? He asked softly. You are a slave. Had you forgotten that? A slave. There is no right or wrong for a slave, save the will of his master. Beric said levelly, but you are not my master. Glaucus looked at him a moment in silence. His eyes narrowed like a cat before it spits. Not yet, he said, still more softly. No, not yet. But who knows what the fates hold in store for us? It was unmistakably a threat. He thrust off from the manger against which he had been leaning all this while and strolled towards the stable door, beyond which the day had suddenly darkened to the color of a bruise, and then turned to face Beric once more. From somewhere, a long way off, came a low mutter of thunder which seemed to intensify rather than break the silence between them. As it died away, suddenly and most unexpectedly, Glaucus flung back his head and laughed. Never look so solemn, you young idiot. I did but seek to test you, and I am rejoiced to find you so far above reproach. Take that for your honesty. And slipping a hand into the many-folded silken girl, he tossed a cesters to Beric's feet and lounged out. But the laughter had not rung true.
and Beric standing beside Venetia, with the sesters still lying untouched at his feet, and staring after him, knew that Glaucus was lying, and what was far more dangerous, that Glaucus knew, he knew. He had seen behind the pleasant mask of Glaucus, and for a moment made Glaucus see behind it too, and that was the thing of all others that Glaucus would never forgive. Again the thunder muttered, nearer this time, and Venetia, who hated thunder, began to snort and shiver. <laughs>